This is CLASS, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. This is the second and final part of DSA's session called The Crisis of American Politics, Socialists, and Liberal Democracy from the Socialism 2022 Conference in September. Thanks to Haymarket Books for sharing the recording. The panel included Sanjeev Gupta, sociologist from Amherst College in Massachusetts, and Paul Heidemann is a writer and high school teacher in New York City, editor of Class Struggle and the Color Line, and his work has appeared in Jacobin, Descent, and In These Times. The session was moderated by Griffin Mahone. If you haven't heard the first part of this session that was in our previous episode of Class, I recommend that you go back to it. In the last episode, Sanjeev Gupta made the case that without bourgeois democracy, also known as liberal democracy, socialists cannot win power. We need freedom of speech and freedom of assembly in order to organize. Socialists often make the mistake of assuming that liberals are the reason why we have liberal democracy. In truth, it is the working class and the masses in struggle Now, Trumpism was itself clearly a product of disorganization within the Republican Party. And so, so I wrote a long article in the journal Catalyst um, that goes into what, what I think are the deep roots of disorganization in American politics. So to understand why Trump won in 2016 in the Republican primaries, I think there's a kind of simple explanation of it, um, in addition to obviously his name recognition and that kind of thing, and that's that there was a real battle in the Republican Party between the party establishment, who had coalesced, of course, around Jeb Bush, right, and the insurgents who were allied with the Tea Party, um, who favored either Ted Cruz or, or, or Scott Walker kind of initially before just what a dud he was. So essentially, the kind of signals from the party's elite, either the establishment elite or kind of the insurgent Tea Party elite, basically canceled each other out. There was no clear signal from the party leadership over who was the preferred candidate in the Republican primary. Uh, in, in physics, in the physics of acoustics, there's a phenomenon called destructive interference, where two sound waves have opposing wavelengths and the result is silence. And that's essentially what happened in the Republican Party. The messages from the establishment and from the insurgents canceled one another out to Donald Trump's benefit. And he was able to leverage his tremendous name recognition, celebrity, and particular brand of uh, cruel charisma in order to take the primaries by storm. So, so the, the, the party was already factionalized and to a degree divided. And that's what allowed Trump to win. And I think that is rooted in some very deep facts in American social life and political life, um, including the, the, the fact that American parties are kind of unique in much of the world in that parties don't control who gets nominated. So in American politics, right, you have like in uh, the Chicago area a couple years ago, there was that Holocaust denier who got on the Republican congressional ticket because it was like, you know, a 90% blue district or something, and the Republicans weren't going to waste any money running someone, and this guy was like, I'm going to run. And the party had totally denounced him, but they couldn't remove him from the ticket, which is, again, kind of just unheard of in most political parties around the world that, like, a party itself can't decide who runs on its ticket. There's a kind of set of external rules, and if people win the primary, then they're, they're on the party ticket, whether the party itself likes that or not. Um, and that clearly happened with Trump, and it's happened again and again with uh, various kinds of Republican primary victories in particular. 
But, and the other part of this is the disorganization of the American corporate elite. So American corporations are very strong, right? And, and have a, an iron grip on American politics in a lot of ways. And that's been true kind of historically. We don't have a social democratic party. The union movement in the United States is considerably weaker than the union movement in other countries. And so American corporations, in order to maintain their hold on politics, and on, on kind of the, the economy more generally, have not had to be as organized as uh, corporations and, and employers in many other countries. There's been a kind of persistent disorganization and a kind of fractiousness, uh, divisions within the American corporate elite. And we see those in the Republican Party today in that, you know, you have plenty of big capitalists who are backing the Tea Party, that kind of thing, right? And then you have like the Chamber of Commerce and the, and the Business Roundtable, uh, the kind of representatives of kind of more traditional capital who are much more firmly allied with like Mitch McConnell and those kind of people. So the fact that the American corporate elite is itself divided and disorganized, uh, particularly with comparison to like other rich democracies, also contributes to the kind of wars that we see inside the Republican Party and its directionlessness. So. To wrap up, both parties in the United States are structurally weak. And both parties are subject to what I was describing with primary candidates being unable to choose their own candidates, that kind of thing. Now, the structural weakness of the Democratic Party has been a real boon to the left, I would argue, right? Like, you don't get Bernie Sanders running for president and being on the news every night without that weakness, right? Without him being able to be like, hey, I'm, I'm, there's gonna be a six-month primary campaign, right, in which I'm gonna be putting forward the case for democratic socialism, et cetera, et cetera. So the weakness of, of the Democrats has been something that the left has been able to really take advantage of in that respect. At the same time, I think it's also important to note that the divisions within the Democratic Party, which certainly exist, are not nearly so severe as the divisions within the Republican Party, right? Like, there's no analog in the Democrats to Liz Cheney being stripped of leadership and, and basically run out of the party. Um, so, so the divisions in the Democratic Party are, are much less sharp than in the Republican Party. The Republican Party is considerably more divided. At the same time, even as that weakness of the Democrats has been something the left has taken advantage of, it's not something that we can kind of bank on long term in that we need a strong party, right? We need a party that's democratically accountable, a party that is controlled by its membership and that decides who runs on our ballot line is who we want to, not like who can win a primary by throwing the most money at the wall, et cetera, that kind of thing, right? So I think there's something of a paradox in the, the kind of disorganization of the parties and that the weakness of the Democrats in particular has been a boon to the left, but ultimately it's something that we have to overcome if we want to have a strong socialist party in the United States. There cannot be a socialist party in the United States that's organized in the way that the Democratic Party is, uh, is organized. The Republican Party, then, is, I think, deeply divided and disorganized, much more so than the Democrats, which doesn't mean they're not dangerous. I just want to emphasize that again. They, the Republicans could definitely win in 2024, which I think would probably have grave consequences for liberal democracy and in precisely the way that Sanjeev laid out. So I'm not saying they can't win. I'm saying that the probability of them winning would be significantly higher if they were not so disorganized right now. And that disorganization and weakness has, uh, I think, a number of opportunities for the left. So uh, Griffin alluded to the description of the event that says the Democrats can't govern, which like, again, in the last month, uh, whatever you want to say about the Democrats, they're clearly doing some governing. And some of it's pretty good, you know? Uh, a lot of people got their student loans forgiven. Um, so I think these kinds of things, which are 
clearly a product of pressure from the left in various ways and of the strength of the left within the Democratic Party, are things that the left really needs to claim as victories and say, these are things that we won. Your life is better because socialists pushed for these things, right? And that, I think, is how we build a bigger base for the left in the United States and how we build a sense that workers have the right to expect something from their government. The government's going to give them things, right? Like, if you're a worker, that's how you should think about the government. Their job is to give you things, right? That's not a sense American workers have at all. It's something we need to build. Um, and I think doing that is going to be one of the key ways of deepening the marginalization of the Republican Party and pushing them even further to the margins of American politics and keeping them there in a place where they are much further from the levers of power and where um, they are, can hopefully be restrained and ultimately crushed completely. At this point in the recording, something was repeatedly hitting the microphone, making it really difficult to hear Griffin, the moderator, and Paul Heidemann. So I'll just summarize what they had to say. Griffin asked Paul and Sanjeev why they didn't use the F word, that is, fascism. Griffin assumed it was intentional to avoid this term, but asked them to expound on their opinion on the use of the term fascism. And he asked a follow-up question, if they prefer not to use the term, how would they describe the Republican Party? Paul said he wasn't opposed to the use of the term for rhetorical reasons, but argues it isn't particularly accurate. Historically, fascism has been the complete crushing of liberal democracy and a complete break with the constitutional order. When fascists come to power, the old constitution is no longer in effect, and all opposing political parties are removed. This is not actually what the Republican Party is doing, though we could consider calling them authoritarian like India or Turkey, where they still have limited liberties, and they also have opposition parties in place. You'll continue to hear some noise as Sanjeev answered Griffin's question but we were able to make the sound quality good enough to include it into the episode. So thanks for bearing with us. I think it's definitely worth it. So other than not trying to avoid using the F word generally uh, in public, I'd say in this particular case, politically, what I found is, um, especially when you're talking to people who aren't kind of keeping up with the politics at the level I'm assuming most of us here are. Using the term is confusing and sometimes just gets in the way. I, I like to think of this like, you know, if I were a meteorologist, you know, and there's a big storm, you know, there's ways you can't just call it a hurricane. You really have, like, the criteria it has to satisfy before you say it's a hurricane and then you have to say category this or that. And there are consequences to being wrong you know, when, when you do that. There are also consequences of not doing it when you should. But in the meanwhile, I think it's, you know, just like if you're looking at a storm, whether or not it's a hurricane, you can talk about how, you know, what the wind speed is or uh, how heavy the rain is going to be and so on. And you can do all of that without 
calling it a hurricane unless you think it really is is a hurricane. So yeah, I will say, I think in an equally sort of semi-flippant way that Paul said, if we do get to fascism in the US, of course, there's um, Canada, but that also, in some ways, you know, the, this is the other reason I don't use the word yet. In some ways, it actually makes the job much easier. It's clarifying. The thing is, if there really was anything resembling that kind of thing in the US, you know, we know what to do, or at least uh, we, uh, you know, and it's it goes beyond the scope of a conversation like this, but then we would do something very different. So, you know, that, that we are not big enough. Well, I think that's right. I mean, we are much bigger than we were a few years ago. And so one thing I think we can all agree with is that we just need to keep getting bigger. So then it's about like, well, how do you do that? And this is where I think, you know, my, my gut sense is that unless we are clearly in the lead of making it clear that basic liberal democracy is absolutely critical for us, that we are right there, um, you know, and that synthesizes the abortion rights, you know, Black Lives Matter, all of it. Um, and that, that really is our fight. Uh, and so, you know, we've put a lot of work into the uh, Medicare for all, union organizing and so on. And we need to keep doing that. But I think this is the piece that's missing. The great political sort of that this, whatever its limits, you know, liberal democracy is, was an achievement by the people for the people. And we're the ones who are going to be put ourselves out to make it stick. So I think that is one way to uh, to get bigger that I think we are probably not doing enough of. But that's as far as I've gotten. This is Class, an official podcast of the Democratic Socialists of America National Political Education Committee. My name is Elton L.K. I'd like to thank Sean Larson from Haymarket Books, Griffin Mahone for hosting this session, Sanjeev Gupta for contributing to sound engineering and other technical support, Casey Sticker as a key member of our tiny team for sound engineering, theme music, and editing. If you're a member of DSA, please share this podcast with your local chapter. Class is intended to be a resource for chapters and members to articulate, apply, and share socialist theory with DSA and the wider working class. Also, remember to rate and review us on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher. 